Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special crossover episode between Media Voices and The Edition. I'm Chris Upliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And Charlotte, who are you? Um, I'm Charlotte Henry, apparently, last time I checked, and I <laughs> I run The Edition blog, newsletter, and podcast. Fantastic. And what is The Edition? What is the focus of it? So it is a newsletter covering all things, that crossover space between media and tech, essentially, um, trying to get some gossipy, scoopy stories about the media <laughs> industry here in the UK, analysing the effect tech is having on our media industry and all that kind of good stuff. And you guys are even kind enough to give me an award at your newsletter, inaugural newsletter awards. So that was very nice as well. Well, it wasn't us, it was the judges. And I think we got you on straight afterwards, basically, to say, well, what were you doing so well? So I would advise our listeners to go back and listen to that episode specifically. Yes, I'm very pleased to be back with you guys. I've got a <laughs> <Nice>. lot to discuss. <laughs> Well, actually, for those of you who don't know, Media Voices itself is a B2B publishing brand. We're focusing on the business of media with a weekly podcast and a daily newsletter. And this season, we've been doing a series of deep dives into some of the biggest trends, tools, and tech that has affected publishers over the past 12 months. Now, that's as part of our annual Media Moments 2023 report, which is going out live next week. You can pre-register for that at voices.media forward slash mm23. But there has been far too much going on in the broadcast world this year for us, the three of us and Media Voices, to have taken a look at. So we are delighted this year to have handed over the chapter on broadcast to Charlotte to get your expert oversight of the past 12 months in broadcast trends. Mm. Now, there's a lot. There are a lot. I was going to say it's <laughs> it's impossible to distill it all down into the space we have on this podcast. Oh, but... indeed, the word can in your lovely report. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, Maybe we should double it next year. <laughs> well, actually, why don't we start with a few of the things that you flagged up in there, Charlotte? Mm. Because, um, like you said, there have been a number of ongoing trends and new trends that emerged over the course of this year. One of the big ones is we've seen the continuation of a sort of reappraisal of the value of linear TV for advertisers. Mm. And so this year, particularly, we've seen it with uh, Alex Mann of CEO of Channel 4. She basically came out last week and said that there's been a big fall in ad spend among some of the big sectors, including durables and retail. And Group M suggests that that's going to become, it's, that's going to be a moderate bounce back in 2024. But in the meantime, some of those linear broadcasts have been really affected. So what has happened? Because linear TV was always seen as sort of kind of the jewel in the advertising crown. It was. And obviously, we could have discussed any of this for the last five years, the decline of that five, 10, whatever, you know, take your pick. To me, and I write this in the report, to me, the only thing keeping linear TV almost in any way relevant is live sport. And to some extent, live news. Mm. Sport in particular is about the only thing you cannot replicate. You can't binge watch sport, not live. <laughs> you can binge watch it, you know, like I do on a Sunday and just turn Sky Sports on all day and not move. You can do that's a binge watching, but it's happening live. And you can't, and it's a thing, linear TV, and we can have a whole discussion later in the show about how some of that is moving to streaming services. But Live sport to me is the thing that is worth a lot of advertising. No doubt we'll see huge numbers, for example, going into Super Bowl advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we saw obviously big numbers for, say, the Lionesses in the World Cup, that kind of thing. But, you know, big drama series that some, the likes of the BBC or ITV are producing, people are not settling down anymore at eight, nine o'clock on a Sunday evening to watch it. Perhaps the only example where they did was like Succession, right? Where we didn't want it spoilers. <laughs> but it's not the same. And obviously that is having an effect on the ad market. 
do you do you foresee that? Oh, sorry, Esther, you go. Um, so I, I've got probably one in not many, not not many long line of questions here. Um, it's, it's interesting you said about news there because I, Chris, I don't remember when we were talking to Peter, but Peter sort of had this realization that we didn't sit down and watch the ten o'clock news anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I remember posting really the community that, being yeah. like, "Is that is that not a thing people do anymore?" And everyone was like, "No." <laughs> it's an interesting one. I'm always slightly conscious of drawing like you know drawing generalizations from this because I don't think the three of us are quote unquote normal media consumers. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean I accept I could have ended that sentence after normal, normal. but you know yeah. <laughs> um you know we are not normal media consumers so I don't think what we do is what we should see as the general way people consume media but I think if you looked at the numbers you would see people are not sitting down for the 10 o'clock news every day. Um, obviously, we're, we're recording this as there's been a massive row about Newsnight, which is being yeah, slashed. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think that is happening as much. I think it happens in big moments. So the Queen has died. The King has been coronated. People watch those live news events or watch the bulletins at the end of the day to see what's happening. War has broken out. People watch the sum up of the day. But I think that's not. I think you just have to look at them so that's not the real trend anymore. People are dipping in and out most of the time during the day, I think. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually, because there are so many trends we could fold into this. One of the things that came up during our uh, chapter on trust and the episode on trust we just put out mm. was the fact that when young people do tune into news on TV, they see this kind of uplifting trust. They trust TV news more than they do news and other sources, but they're just not tuning in to the same extent. And, you know, you mentioned Newsnight there. I wanted to bring that up. Is it sort of, do you believe there's a wider recognition now that even at the broadcasters where news is still the crown jewel, it's still what they see as being very much their raison d'etre, that it's not necessarily the draw that it once was, that news consumption has gone elsewhere and that they don't need to potentially cater for it? Even though in the case of the BBC and Channel 4, that is part of their remit to the public. That's part of their charters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that, Producing news is very, very important to the BBC and Channel 4, but there's also a difference between rolling news and news bulletins to a sort of news magazine show like Newsnight. They're very, very different things. And the leadership yeah. of the BBC has swung decisively in the direction of the former, not the latter. Mm. It's it's really interesting when I used to... My first job in media, I would say... Uh, uh, what the job title was but i had to watch rolling news from half six well from six in the morning to half two at night and that was very much sorry what oh yeah yeah i was it was a media monitor so i was basically watching rolling news from six to half two it was very dispiriting but Esther, your face did you never know that <laughs> i didn't know that and i, I think so you watched i never i never want to watch news again no i did three years yeah three years so you watched news for three years for 20 hours a day uh <laughs> six till half two yeah so not 20 hours a day, <laughs> eight and a half, but it was still quite... Oh, right. uh, oh half yeah. two in the afternoon. You said half oh, two God, That's yeah. why we both panicked. Oh, God, no, 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 no. <laughs> but even okay. then, that was, that's you know, that enough. was... Yeah, I was watching the kind of the, the BBC regionals mm. for a lot of that, and they were very much seen as kind of the heart of a community, keeping people informed. Has that responsibility moved away, do you think, from television news to be the heart and soul of a community, to be the, I suppose, the arbiter of what's important in an area? Well, look, you guys have covered lots of interesting local media startups. I often dip into your newsletter and see that you've covered, I mean, you mentioned the Manchester Mill, you've mentioned that regularly, but there, there are other examples. So I think they're actually picking up the slack as opposed to the mm. responsibility has shifted. I mean, there are all manner of issues 
with BBC local broadcasting, particularly in the radio space. That yeah. seems to be the real major crunch point at the moment with jobs going and, you know, content being merged and so on. That seems to be where the real issues are. And look, it's important. That's what sometimes people associate with the BBC and what they associate with the licence fee. And look, I say it on every podcast I go on, including my own, when I talk about the BBC, I think the BBC licence fee is the best value subscription I have mm. um, as a general rule. I'm lo- Esther, I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I use BBC services regularly. Now, uh, you mentioned trust earlier, um, and I, I'm i sorry, sir, I think the BBC over the last couple of months as the Israel uh, Hamas war mm. has broken out has absolutely disgraced itself, if I'm honest. I yeah. I think it has shown a shameful institutional groupthink that has been very troubling for someone like me that generally wants to support the BBC. I think some of the examples of what it has done, which we don't need to go on to here because we've got lots to discuss, have been egregious, frankly. But as, as I still return to my general point that I think the BBC licence fee is the best subscription that I pay for, and I mean that sincerely. But it has got... And there's a huge issue, and I think possibly some of the issues around the war in the Middle East have come from this, but not all of them, because we've seen experienced journalists make egregious mistakes and say egregious things as well. But there's a clearly has been a brain drain at the BBC. It's inter- it's really interesting you, you flagged that, because that, the kind of the conflicts in the Middle East and then some flashpoints like the Farage bank account have contributed to kind of this full interest in the BBC. We've seen a dip uh, in terms of trust, both from Ofcom and from some other sources which I've seen have been sent to my email. But that's also then fed into this uh, roundabout license fee, whether it is still value for money. Do you feel, and obviously we've seen cuts and cuts and cuts at the service Going into 2024, what do you feel are going to be some of the discussions we're having about the BBC? Is it still going to be? Is it worth the money that we pay for it? Or are we going to talk about it in terms of transformation? What it's doing around BBC Studios, its commercial arm? What do you see are going to be sort of big topics around the BBC specifically? So people like you and I might discuss BBC Studios and commercial and look at the different shows that are coming out and the different way it's making money and you know the podcast strategies and all of that. But the general public see, is the news channel good? Are there some dramas I like to watch at the weekend? And those are the things, and things that matter. And we really have to emphasize, um, we're going to 2024 where there are probably going to be, there are going to be a US election and a UK election. Oh, God. Um, and the BBC is going to be under huge scrutiny for, you know, partisan scrutiny. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, God, I'm just trying to think about how it's dealt with stuff like the Brexit referendum. Indeed. And then kind of the last election. And, yeah, it cannot do right for doing wrong in a lot of cases. But, yeah, that's with both of them this year and the lack of resource, which it has in a lot of cases. And what we've seen with, you know, the BBC World Service as well. I mean, we could talk about the BBC for an entire age. Let's, let's just draw a line under the BBC and say, look, lots going yeah. on there. But one of the things I wanted to pick up on is before you were talking about the role of live sport and the role of some, um, I suppose, exclusive content. Mm-hmm. Now, we've seen ITV has done better than Channel 4 in the UK because it cited stuff like 
not just the Lionesses, but the Rugby yep. Cup, Love Island, some of its big tall temple uh, Sorry, that's the that's most extraordinary, success. amazing segue from Rugby World Cup to Love Island. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I suppose both of them have lots of muscle on display or something. I, that's true. That's true. But it's it's one of those where I wondered what do you think is of the role of exclusive content at a sort of linear broadcaster versus a streaming service is now because it used to be a major point of differentiation. Yep. These long running shows on um, these long running shows on linear broadcasters versus kind of those big new explosive releases from streaming services. What do you see as having been the realization around the role of exclusive content? Yeah. Well, I just think whatever platform it's on, that's what brings the eyeballs right you know it's fine having you know you you can pick and choose your say your rolling news outlet but you can't pick and choose where you watch the rugby world cup or love island Mm. or the bake-off or succession or whatever you know or doctor who you know those are properties and they're very we're seeing how important they are Uh, or stranger things or do you know what i mean like yeah. They, they become associated with the power. And actually, Bake Off is a very interesting example because it has very clearly lost a bit of its edge since it moved from the BBC. I've seen that. I, so we watched the, I don't want to get into a big Bake Off rant, but Tasha oh, should no. not have been eliminated when she was. But <laughs> I've seen a lot of response basically saying that last year it had too much bite and this year they sort of, sort of smoothed it over a little what? bit and it's lost its way a little bit. You know, the glaze has been smoothed over. Oh, God, how many of these are we going to have? <laughs> I'm a big fan of Alison Hammond, though. I think she was an excellent right. addition to it. But even bringing in a great broadcaster like that hasn't, like, it was, a. I sort of think it was associated with the BBC and it's lost a bit of its oomph. So I think there is, uh, the point I'm making, not about cake, is that I think there <laughs> is a point where an outlet is associated with a programme and that matters. Mm. I guess the proof is in the pudding, Oh, for right? goodness sake. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> that Can was I so just, fast. Okay, I'm going to... Just gonna... say it's lucky Peter's Go not here because I think he would have walked off by this point. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that edit. I'm not going to edit that at all. That is a, listen to that. That's exactly how fast Esther responded with that. So, um, but one of the things that we want to talk about there is you, you mentioned Bake Off. You mentioned some of those other properties like Doctor mm-hmm. Who and Stranger Things. And we've, this year, I feel like we've seen broadcasters more than ever recognise the value of IP, mm. the IP that they own, because they've been extending it into merch. BBC Studios has been taking what they're doing with BBC Earth, so they're sort of nature-focused content and really expanding that into a commercial property. Well, look at Netflix, right? Netflix mm. has been criticised loads for not doing live sport, um, which you can probably tell is one of the things I really think is important in this landscape. Um, but then it did this stupid... Netflix cut <laughs> golf thing, right? Where it brought Drive to Survive, really well liked IP that was, you know, behind the scenes documentary, the Formula One drivers, and Full mm-hmm. Swing, also pretty popular behind the scenes, uh, the PGA Golf. And it put it into this live event. Now, that's not beating Amazon's rounds of Premier League football, but it's a very clever use of IP because mm-hmm. it's got stuff it's already owned. It brings people in. Like it's a pretty clever use of IP, whatever I think of it, and a good test for doing stuff live for Netflix. But they they've really stumbled in that. Um, I probably you two are far classier than I am and, and don't watch Love Is Blind, <laughs> but they they tried a, a huge sort of Love right. Is Blind um, like reunion special, and they're like you know it's going live at this point. It made a huge thing about the fact it's going live, and and the, it completely it was a horror them. show. And the live 
yeah, it can, the, the live, I don't know what, what part of it was, but the, the live element completely failed. So they had to release it like six yeah. hours later. It was a complete shambles and they haven't done anything live since then uh, until they mm. did this golf tournament. It really, they did, was it Dave Chappelle did a live comedy? Right. Which I suppose is, to your point earlier, it's, it's designed to be one of those kind of temple events which gets people not just to sign up, but to all watch at the same time. So they have, you know, an actual sort of like, I suppose, something to sell to advertisers because obviously Netflix is trying to do a big thing around its advertising-based proposition as well, which we can get into in a bit. But does that mean then that even somebody with all the resource that Netflix has cannot necessarily replicate what, you know, other broadcasters have been doing for generations at this point? Um, Or at least there's a steep learning curve to it. There are trying aren't they look Mm. live is difficult esther has given the perfect example that proves it you would thought you know it's not even like sport where each second counts it's just a live show and you'd have thought they could pull that off and it went horribly wrong um so it's a perfect example of that so i think some of these tech companies which is essentially what they all are have underestimated how hard live is like it's one thing to spend a lot of money on content and upload it and people watch it whenever they want. That's difficult, but that's what they live even more difficult. And I think that, and you know, the BBC ITV channel four have been doing live for quite a long time. They sort of know how it works. I have an unrelated question, but one that I'm definitely not entirely clear on. So obviously here in the UK, um, we've not had strikes. Uh, (laughs) The U S has been hit very, very hard by the Hollywood strikes. Um, are we expecting to see the impact of that like next year? I I, I, so I didn't really follow yeah. where the resolution ended up, how that affected broadcasters over there. And um, I have read your chapter, so I'm not going to spoil it for everybody else. But what what happened there, and where are we where are we at? So with obviously that? we've now had the writers' union and the actors' union do deals, which last three years, so that's all resolved. Uh, Sean McNulty told me on my post actually there is the possibility of a strike next year for the sort of crew, the union for the crews. Hmm. We, my guess is that won't happen because they can't have two years of strikes. It would just be a disaster. They'll sort it out. But worth keeping an eye on. In terms of what the wave of strikes we saw this year has, which was months long, the likelihood is what we'll see is delays to releases. That, you know, stuff that couldn't be shot when it was scheduled to be shot will obviously therefore come out later when we would have got it here. That will be the big thing. We did. I mean, we didn't not be. We weren't not affected here for all sorts of silly reasons. For example, um, just before the strikes were uh, sort of finished, when that particularly that this was the actor strike. One of the features of the actor strike was that if you went on television as an actor, you could not talk about the show. You could not do any promotion. Basically, slightly depended on what it was, but as a general, you couldn't promote anything you were in. So we had this... Yeah, Drew Barrymore. Right. So you had this rather nonsense thing, right, a few weeks ago where Graham Norton had on his show Sarah Snook from, obviously, Succession, and a few, she was talking about her acting appearance in Dorian Gray on the stage here in London, and Greta Lee promoting a new film and but couldn't talk about the morning show. And it became mm. slightly farcical, like, because... <laughs> The film Greta Lee was working with A24. There was a special example, you know, there was a bit of an example so she could talk about the movie. But it became slightly farcical for these celebrities. There were, I think, there was issues, well, 
first of all, in America, the nightly shows didn't, you know, late night shows just didn't happen because there were no writers for a long time. But it became slightly farcical here as well when, you know, people were going on radio and TV and stuff and couldn't talk about the things we would want them to talk about. <laughs> Ostensibly Right, to be exactly. So there was yeah. all of that. But the big thing we will see is delays to releases and, like, release schedules will have been undoubtedly disrupted and we'll notice that next year. One of the things that I think is interesting here is the parallels between what the writer's strike was actually about and what we're seeing in a lot of um, journalism mm-hmm. at the moment, which is concerns about the role of AI and what generative AI is actually going to do to shows and broadcasts. And I remember that, you know, a lot of the signs that I saw from the writer's strike was stuff like, you know, uh, just puns and stuff on the fact that AI cannot necessarily write shows that people mm-hmm. want to watch. How How quickly is it? until we start seeing some of the completely AI-generated stuff like we've seen on Twitch, like uh, Seinfeld's AI, uh, migrate its way across to TV in this sort of official way. I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I would, no disrespect, not be talking to you, but I'd be <laughs> getting a very nice paycheck from Sam Altman. <laughs> yeah. But That's silly fair. <laughs> my guess is we'll start, the problem will be with web content long before it's with TV and film content. Maybe yeah, online, that's totally- maybe online video will shift a bit first, but I suspect. And remember, the deals that were done with the two unions did, to some extent, restrict the use of AI or at least keep it in the conversation. You know, I think from what I gather, some of the language was a bit fuzzy, but mm. that was one of the big focuses of both the strikes. And so we will. I don't think it's going to be a mass. Like, I don't think your favourite TV series is going to be written by AI anytime soon. There was an excellent, excellent meme I saw going around where um, they'd fed an AI all of the Hallmark Christmas movies and asked it to write the intro script. And the first page is just, it's just absolutely brilliant. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it's so bad, it's good. <laughs> Which is, of course, the definition of a Hallmark movie. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think we underpins almost everything we've been talking about is where consumers are choosing to watch what we think of as broadcast content, because that term has become so loose, you know, to what extent do we start having to talk about, you know, digital video versus content, you know, what is, what separates a, say, Twitch stream, for example, from something that is going on across either linear or Netflix. So one of the things that we've seen that underpins almost all the discussions we've had is a change in consumption habits. And to the point you just made, you, you were saying it's quite generational. Uh, I think it is generational. Look, Ofcom's Media Nation's 2023 report found that 16 to 24-year-olds are now watching less television on average than 4 to 15-year-olds. And I believe that's the first time that's ever flipped. So really? I'm guessing what it means is 16 to 24-year-olds are sitting watching TikTok or YouTube or watching Chris play games on Twitch as a per- as opposed to sitting watching, you know, whatever's on at five o'clock on BBC One, like maybe we did as kids. I had seven people watching my last stream. Thanks for rubbing that in, Charlotte. That's great. Um, so I suppose what's interesting, are we expecting that these will not be recaptured? You know, these these people will not be necessarily scooped up by linear broadcast in the same way that they once uh, would be, you know, once they've sort of aged into an era where they're looking for news content, maybe? I think probably the habits of... I think the habits are never not even being broken. I just think they're not being formed anymore. So it's like that, I suppose that that scoop, that easy scoop that a lot of the linear broadcasters had to get people into their ecosystem has been 
well, take like, away. That's why I suppose we've seen like the BBC experiment on places like yeah, this. and that's all fine. I don't know how they monetize it, uh, particularly for a commercial. It's one thing if it's the BBC; it's much more difficult if it's a commercial broadcaster. How do you monetize that to yeah. any meaningful way? I'm just thinking of things like I'm thinking of ter- knowing that Friends was on on E4 every afternoon. Now, as a yeah. teenager, right, oh, but yeah. who cares now if you're a teenager? You don't care if it's on Comedy Central or E4. You just put it on Netflix when you, at the moment you <laughs> want, the episode you want. Like, I just think those habits are not broken and not coming back. And that four to 15-year-old age bracket is interesting because that's not their habits. That's the parents setting that. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming like four-year-olds aren't just putting the TV on. They may well be, but that's – and I kind of think when um, – the screen time I do allow my toddler is very much like I'll get Netflix up and put, you know, Peter Rabbit on or, or Coco Melon. Sorry, can we pause? If you don't know Coco Melon is. <laughs> is the freakiest thing oh my I have goodness. ever seen. I've seen it. I felt like I was on drugs. And I like honestly. <laughs> it's it's so if you if you want to like a complete trip, look at how they produce them because they sit kids in a room, make them watch them every time the kids' attention is distracted away, they like no, tweak horrendous. it. So it's oh the God. most optimized thing you can possibly give your child. And it's it's really frightening seeing kids' reactions to it. But you know, old McDonald had a farm, it's it's fairly harmless. There's some terrible, <laughs> terrible stuff on there as well. But um but I I think probably as a as a, as a parent, my decision is uh, uh, yeah, I, I will choose the streaming service or YouTube because I just know that's where stuff is. And I mean, our, our TV isn't connected to like the outside world. Anyway, but so. that's such an interest. <laughs> well, that's it, CTV. There you go, yeah. you've just proven the point. CTV is such an interesting one. Uh, this, this year, we've seen so much competition for space on the kind of the CTV homepage, whether that's, you know, Roku, for instance, which made a big play for it. Or we've seen places like Disney Plus, which have paid a lot of money to be in that kind of top slot on a CTV as soon as you like log into that sort of your your hub. So, and we've seen the CTV connected stats as well. That's not going anywhere. And it just seems to me to go back to what I was saying before about broadcasts competition now is not solely other broadcast channels. It's every digital video service that exists But that hasn't online. been the case for a long time and surely they've realized that by now. Yeah. I mean, if you're a TV executive who hasn't worked that out by now, you don't deserve to be in your job. No, I'm, I'm serious. But I yeah. think we also have to have a discussion, actually, about the sort of number of services people are prepared to use, prepared to pay for. So just going back to that Media Nations report from Ofcom, it found that 66% of UK households used a SVOD service, streaming video on demand service, in the first three months of 2023. But that was down a couple of percent from 68% for the same period in 2022. Now, it's not a huge mm. flip. But it's not nothing. And what will be important yeah. is the 2024 number. Do we reckon that's because he lives? I think there's a bit of that. I think it's a bit. First of all, don't. I'm walking off the show if you ever <laughs> yeah, do that again. Don't. I suspect yeah. there is some personal finance strain. I suspect there is a bit of, do I actually, am I actually using this service? Do I need it anymore? Is there any point to having it if I'm not paying for it? Like, am I paying, paying the amount that I get value from? Um, so I suspect there's all sorts of stuff. Is there stuff I want to watch on there? Has my really good intro mm. deal expired? Because we, I mean, we we had this with Netflix last year, didn't we? When like Netflix had seen this this drop, and then Stranger Things came back on over the summer, and they had a huge bump in subscribers. And it, I, I can remember discussing this last year. It was like, it just shows how important having those those flagship shows that, that are going to convert. And of course, what Netflix did was release Stranger Things in two parts over two quarters. 
yeah. to make sure people had to stay. So you couldn't just get the free trial. No, but the, not only that, but yeah. it went into their financial results for two quarters, people having to pay for it. Um, I have a follow-up question to the uh, to Netflix, actually. Um, so towards the end of last year, Netflix and Disney Plus both said, oh, do you know what, we're actually going to introduce cheaper mm. ad-supported tiers. And then they actually went and bumped the price of everything up and made the cheapest tier the same price as whatever the lowest tier was before. Um, how has that gone this year? Because I remember like, my eyebrows were very raised at the time, but it seems to have sort of, I mean, they're still doing it, they're still offering it. Uh, yeah, they're quite buoyant or, you know, proud of the, what they're, they're quite confident in what they're doing with the ad supported tier Netflix. If you look at some of the stuff that they said, yeah. you know, like investor meetings and stuff like that after results. Um, I sort of feel like introducing the ads has broken the deal, has broken the contract with subscribers. We all signed up to streaming services and the deal was you pay for the streaming service and because you're paying and, you know, in some cases, pretty premium amount a, of money per month, yeah. you then don't have to watch adverts. And I feel that that contract has been broken. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see the backlash to that. That said, Netflix in particular has posted some pretty decent Correct. results in terms of its... But they also did their password sharing crackdown at the same well, time. Was, so it's difficult was, to... It, like, but it's all really part difficult. of the same thing. They introduced the adverts in the cheaper tier to try and encourage people to start their own... Uh, have their own account as opposed to share a password. It's all part of the same strategy. Well, that leads neatly onto what I was going to ask about the maturation of the kind of the SVOD arena. Because this year we've seen, we have seen so many places. We mentioned the Netflix... Uh, Password crackdown. We've mentioned some of the stuff that Paramount Plus has been doing, or rather we haven't, but we'll get onto that. And it all seems to be in favor of, it seems like this year we've seen a move away from those very sort of aggressive user acquisition pricing strategies and more into the streaming services looking at the mm. revenue per user across kind of an entire you know user's lifetime with that service. So next year, as we go in, is the competition going to be as fierce for user acquisition among streaming services? Yeah, I would think so. And I think the big shift has been investors actually care about getting their money back now. For a long time, as mm. you rightly said, they were prepared for streaming services to be a loss leader. Um, look, Netflix still has a whole ton of debt. It's, you know, I'm not saying these are, you know, that that is still the case, but they do now care, as you say, about how much each user is bringing in and they care mm. about actually these services actually making some money as opposed to just being these sort of very glamorous lost leaders. Look, we're seeing Apple bump up its prices. We're seeing, yeah. and maybe even being bundling talks with Paramount Plus or something because that, it, I think that might be one of the tra trends. I didn't have time to get into this in the chapter, but I think, Perhaps the 2024 chapter, broadcast chapter, will talk a lot about rebundling and some of these services having to come together to survive. I, I just heard you volunteering to write that. <laughs> we'll talk about it off air. <laughs> well, one of the, you mentioned rebundling there and a trend going into 2024. I think one of the things that we should probably mention is the fact that that has been happening a, a bit, bit this year already, almost people testing the waters. So we've seen, for instance, you know, a bunch of CBS All Access stuff getting trialed across the services. We've seen the very niche streaming services like, you know, Shudder being part of Amazon for a very, very long time now. Sky and Peacock. I mean, Spike, Sky and Peacock. Yeah, exactly. 
is the is that age of kind of the the dream of the cord cutter is that now over? Um, I don't know. You could probably still do it. Again, it may be sport that keeps you not cord cutting. Back to my general theme. Although obviously we are starting to see lots of sport available either in a standalone streaming service. I'm talking Peacock having, you know, if you're a Premier League football fan and you're in the US, you can watch basically every single game on Peacock. Uh, If you want to watch sport here, you can get Now TV or TNT Discovery Plus. Um, So all of that is possible. So I think I'm not sure the age of the cord cutter is over. I'm just not sure you're saving that much money anymore. That's fair. Now we didn't. This and you still have to pay your BBC license fee. Remember, if it. Well, that's true. That is true. Do you remember last year when that uh, gang in India was caught running a fake cricket league, to and they were selling it to a Russian. How have I missed this amazing story? Oh, it was the best story. So they. Uh, a gang set up a fake Indian Premier League tournament with farm labourers who were acting as players of this like cricket tournament, um, and it was broadcast to uh, you know online, and a bunch of Russian gamblers were were betting on it. And t- it turned out that of course it was all fake, and they were throwing games and all this kind of stuff. And it was eventually busted by the police in India just at the quarterfinal Amazing. stage, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is just speaks to a, I suppose, how valuable sports content is. And also how gullible people are and what in you know and how loose a lot of people are with their cash. I don't know what that's got to do with broadcast. Well, it just reminds me. Who's of who's gonna it. pay for what? I wanted to talk about it. In your chapter you mentioned Paramount Plus, and I wonder what is it that set that apart from other broadcasters of the services for you. I think the answer is that there is nothing that sets it apart. And I think it may be one of those hmm. services that we we're talking about before that might have a difficult time. So what it does do very well is it has a, a it has a catalogue that is of value. It has mm. all of Star Trek, which for some people is really valuable. Um, yeah, no, Sounds great. Like- I'm happy to go back and watch Catherine Janeway many, many times. Uh, uh, yeah, she was much quite maligned, so. but you know, she got them home. She got them home. Spoiler alert. <sighs> oh, I'm sorry for Star Trek Voyager, which aired during the 90s. <laughs> uh, so it's got all of Star Trek and... Talk back to your very important point about IP. It's used what it owns in Star Trek to make new Star Trek content, which is important. It's got things like Yellowstone, the prequel, 1883. Of course, it had a massive hit. Top Gun Maverick also had, you know, I think for a period of time it could show the original Top Gun as well. Great. Mm. Very important content. But it hasn't had a hit, I would say. Yellowstone maybe is the closest. I think they probably thought that that Lioness's um, kind of action series was one of it was going to be it, but I don't think it's quite had its breakthrough moment. It does have sports content in the US, so that's worth remembering. Like what we see as Paramount Plus here in the UK is slightly different in the US, but it had so it hasn't had its Ted Lasso moment, I would say. Do you think the curse is going to be it? Because the, the curse, curse is brilliant. Is brilliant. I was very like pretty freaky. Um I was quite <laughs> disturbed by episode one, but yes. I, yeah. I, I certainly yeah. think it wants the curse to be that. But mm. I'm not sure that's going to provide. Think about that, Ted Lasso. So people were not really interested in Apple TV Plus, right? Like yeah. a bit. People like to watch the morning show because it had Jennifer Aniston in it, it, had Jason Momoa's arms in C. You know, like there was stuff <laughs> to bring people in. There were basically no one was paying for it, so it didn't matter anyway. And then obviously 
Ted Lasso changed the game massively. It was a huge, huge hit. And then it gave people a chance to find the rest of the catalogue. I think Paramount Plus really does need that this year. Mm. It's it's so tricky, isn't it? I remember going to a uh, the Radio Times 100th anniversary event a couple of weeks ago. And one of the, they had people there from uh, BBC, Channel 4, Sky, and Amazon Prime Video. And Chris Bird from Amazon Prime Video was talking about mm-hmm. how they commission. And he was saying that they commission on the basis of two things, one of which was stickiness. You know, what are they going to, what do they see as kind of relatively cheap ish content, which will keep Jack people Reacher, in once they have, exactly, yeah, who have like come into the ecosystem. But they need those huge hits to actually get people in. The, the, the hits are kind of the, the antenna that sticks outside of the paywall, and that's what attracts people in. But even that, he said, with the vast array of data which Amazon Prime Video has, it's not as simple as, do you remember Netflix's old commissioning thing where they would just like do a Venn diagram, people are interested in this, people are interested in this, therefore we'll smash them together and find like a hit. He was saying that that is not necessarily possible anymore. You have to basically take a gut instinct on what is going to be popular and just kind of yeah. go from there, which seems to me to be such a, with the t- with TV budgets these days, like unbelievable gamble in a lot of cases. Look, it turns out making hit TV is really difficult. Who knew? <laughs> One of the things that you know we should probably touch upon here is that Terry White, uh, ex M- ex editor of Empire. Um, uh, Empire, yeah, fantastic. You should everyone should sign up to her newsletter, uh, White Noise. But she was talking about the fact that diversity within the TV industry has actually regressed. There are fewer women working at high level positions within TV and film than there were even a couple of years ago. And how has that happened? Because it seems to me that with the spotlight on diversity and inclusion, as it should be, how has that how has that happened? And what have we seen? How is that going to impact how we commission, how we watch TV? Uh, I wish I had a good answer, but so one thing is it's going to make less interesting TV. Certainly, yeah. And I think actually. In some ways, this was where Netflix, particularly in the early days, thrived because it could take a risk Mm. on writers from different backgrounds, on younger writers, on less tried and tested stuff. And that gave opportunities to lots of people. And I think if everyone is, I think if there's more fear in the industry over what they're making, who's going to watch it, is it going to work or not, um, that will make things difficult. I actually think so. The BBC back, to, you know, flip it back to the start of our conversation. The B, that's one thing the BBC can do because it has no commercial responsibility. Channel Four was always the best at this. It made stuff literally mm. no one else would get away with. No one else would have got away with making. I'm going to age myself terribly, but I don't care. No one else would have got away with making skins apart from Channel Four. <laughs> Frankly, yeah, no one else you. would get away with making Naked Attraction apart from Channel Four. <laughs> But do do you know what I mean? They could take a punt on those things. And that is really important because it means people, I think, feel freer to take, to be able to give opportunities to people from backgrounds who maybe don't get the opportunities but have all the talent that they should. And look at the casket effect that will come from that because, I mean, half the cast of Skins have gone on to be major Hollywood stars. Okay, well, thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on and having a chat. Thank you for doing this uh, crossover episode. We should be doing more of them. For the listeners, 
where can they find you? Where can they find more of your uh, So head over to theedition.net. I blog there. If you, you can also, there's a sign up. There's loads of sign up boxes to the newsletter. But if you just want to head to the newsletter, go to newsletter.theedition.net. You can read all the previous uh, editions of the edition there. And you can sign up there as well. And I will obviously particularly love you if you want to take out a paid subscription. And if you're listening on Charlotte's channel and you've not heard of Media Voices, we're Media Voices. Um, <laughs> as well as a weekly podcast, we also have a daily newsletter bringing you the top four stories a day from across the media industry. Uh, we do regular analysis. There's an online community forum where we discuss uh, watching recommendations. And our annual Media Moments report, which is being released next week, featuring a chapter written by Charlotte dedicated to broadcast. All that is at voices.media or on your podcast app of choice every Monday. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Media Voices. Thank you, everybody, to, for listening to the edition. We'll be back next week at Media Voices with another fantastic episode. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Charlotte, what's going on next yeah, week? Yeah, I will be back next week. Um, we'll be actually doing some more deep dives into what the BBC, what, 2024 holds for the BBC. So if you enjoyed that bit, we've got a lot more to discuss because there is a hell of a lot going on. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And from myself and Esther, goodbye. And I will see you all at the edition next week. Bye.